This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello and welcome to the Client Blue Podcast. This is our Monday show for this week. I'm Dan Robinson, joined by John McKenzie from TIFO uh, to discuss Unai Emery's tactics. We're going to talk about the high line, we're going to talk about Bubakar Kamara's role, John McGinn's role, Emi Martinez, the sweeper-keeper, uh, and much, much more. I've got a couple of questions from the audience as well I'm going to put to John. Uh, before we get into those, my question, John, how are you? Yeah, really good. It's always good to uh, appear on, on your podcast. So yeah, looking forward to chatting to you. Yeah, thanks for coming on once again. We're, we always enjoy chatting with you. Now, I'll go to a question from the audience first of all before we get stuck into half an hour, 45 minutes of uh, tactical chat. Has John actually seen many Villa games in preparation for this? <laughs> John, have you seen Villa this year? I've I've been doing my due diligence, yeah. I've watched a few games back. It's been it's been good fun. Very fun team to watch. I've always been a massive fan of Unai Emery. And um, yeah, it's great to see him doing his thing at, at Villa. So yeah, I'm. I'm uh, I've done my homework, so don't worry. I know there's this this idea that I just guess what's going on and just look at the numbers, but uh, I, I'm a, I am actually an eye test above data kind of guy. I often go to the data to sort of back up what my eyes have seen or to check that you know I'm not wildly off the mark. So um, yeah, the the proof of the pudding is always in the eating. Um, and yeah, I, I think that every time anything with Villa goes on, I get thousands of people in my mentions mentioning XG, and I'm sort of like, yeah, you know. Fair enough, but um, I'm always going to be someone who is is tactics first and and eye test first, and the you know small sample sizes over big sample sizes first as well. To be honest, you mentioned XG, so let's get that elephant out of the room very quickly. Because <laughs> I know that we've got fans watching this who know you or, or know part of you for that video of explaining that Villa are lucky or Villa are overperforming. We actually had a question on Twitter from Dan who said, "Not me, different one." Now, how does he, <laughs> how does John feel to be wrong about Villa overperforming? And is his apology to an in the post (laughs) well as we were saying just before i came on air um that video made a very specific argument and that argument was villa are a good team but if you look at their underlying numbers last season uh the 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 suspicion was that they weren't going to be able to keep up their their ridiculous run of form unless things changed um, we've just put out a video on our feed today. So we're, we're recording this on Friday. So when it comes out on Monday, it'll still be a fresh video. Sam Tai having a look at the, the question of whether or not Villa are genuine top four contenders. And what we have at the beginning of that video is a, a rolling expected goals chart. Um, so basically what we do is we take the average um, of 10 games and we roll it along. So, you know, first 10 games of the season, then we move it on a game, move it on. And it just gives, gives you a little bit more of a, a sense of exactly where... Um, a team are at in terms of what they're doing in front of goal and how they're stopping teams uh, in front of in front of their own goal as well. And if you look at that rolling XG plot during the Emery tenure, you can see that last season, a lot of the time, uh, Villa's expected goals against was much higher than its expected goals for. That means that on average, you're as- assuming that you're going to um, not be generating as many chances or as good chances as your opponents, which is obviously not a situation you want to be in. Uh, mm-hmm. But towards the end of the season, that starts to flip around. And what we see then is that the expected goals for going above the expected goals against, um, which means that you're in a position where 
good performances are going to result in good um, are going to result in actual good results more often um, that's what we talk about when we talk about sustainability and on sustainability and this season villa look in a much healthier position than they did last season in terms of the underlying yeah. numbers um, and at the end of the video i did last season i said these underlying numbers don't change then you would expect expect those results to start regressing to a uh, a, a, a mean which is lower than where they're at if Unai Emery can turn things around in terms of what's going on in terms of underlying performances Villa will be worth the the sorts of results that they're getting and that's clearly what's happened and it's a, a sign of uh, of what, what fans should expect from from Unai Emery um as because he's he's a great manager he he knows what he's doing and um uh, I I there's no one happier than myself Dan that, that Villa have now flipped things around in terms of their underlying numbers. So in terms of that video, that I, I have no regrets. I did, don't disagree with anything that I said in that video. Um, what I could probably have done better is worded things slightly um, mm. differently. Would you use when, the word you, lucky? Yeah, look, luck is is a, obviously a tendentious word. And I think the assumption is, is that when you say a team have been lucky, you're saying the team is bad uh, and therefore they, they don't deserve what they're getting. Mm. Um, whereas I think... I always operate under the principle that you know good teams can be lucky as well. Things can go right. Everything can go well for for teams. And you know we, we're seeing that a little bit this season. You know, last season you guys were the, the masters of game state. You scored goals early in games, and it helped you to control games and, and carry those wins through. Now, obviously, mm. you're scoring goals because you're doing things on the pitch to try and score goals. But you know when you score those goals, it can sometimes just be uh, runs of luck. You can get, maybe get an early penalty that could have gone either way. Uh, that can help you to get three points much easier than staying in a drawing game state for longer. Whereas we're going to talk about this, no doubt, in a bit. But the away form this season, if you actually mm. look at the, the the numbers for why you're performing badly away from home, there's been four games so far that you've lost, which you've conceded goals in the first six minutes. Um, so yeah. games against Liverpool, Legia, Warsaw. Um, there's a game against Forest. I think they scored within five minutes. And there's there's one other game as well. I can't remember who you lost to, but but Newcastle. Back, yeah, Newcastle. So far, I think five minutes Newcastle, three minutes uh, Liverpool, three minutes Legia, and mm. five minutes um, um, Newcastle. Uh, Nottingham Forest. Yeah. So you know that's that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about luck generally it's, it's kind of little things going against you like the mm. liverpool game is a classic example right you yes liverpool causing you problems they're, they're pressing pal torres torres gives away a corner and then zobosly yeets it in from the edge of the box right okay they've done well to score that goal but it impacts the way that the the fixture goes going forward so yeah. when i'm when i'm talking about luck i'm just talking more about you know variance things not not the ideal situation happening in every in every uh, every um, turn of events, and so my point was simply that you can't rely on that as a as a team. You, what you can the only thing you can rely on is making sure that your underlying numbers are better. And if you do that, then more often than not, the luck will will go your way. Um, mm. And I think that's the position that Villa are in now. Yeah, we have the the post match reaction show that we do like ten minutes after full time. And in those defeats you mentioned, particularly Nottingham Forest, we come on and we're like. Well, it wasn't really that bad. It was only because they scored an early goal, and you can't have that as a throwaway comment. But mm. it's interesting that you talk about like, the game state. If you go down early on, I was going to call that. I, I would call that an unlucky result, right? You you conceded yeah. two goals from very few chances. They were both perlers from outside the box, and, and the start yes, of each half as well. Exactly, and you can argue that Villa need to be better at breaking down low blocks. Obviously, but I, I also kind of feel as though. There's an element of unlock there. If 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 mm. you you put up more and better chances than your opponents, they 
score two from outside and then that's it three points and and that's you know that's that's just how variance goes and it's football it's a it's a wildly chaotic game and you, you're never going to be on the right side of what you deserve ever um mm. no one's ever putting up pretty much exactly the same expected goals as they're going to score right um so it is just a heuristic means of being able to tell whether or not you're good or not and it should always be taken with a pinch, pinch of salt and it seems as though uh, the way that Villa are playing at the moment allows them to to overperform their expected goals as things stand and I mean we can talk about this maybe later on as well but um, the, the question is always going to be I think in these sorts of situations what is it that is going to cause um, good, good, good runs of performances to become bad runs of performances. Even if, even if there's nothing that you can do about that, and I think that's what's what's so interesting about um, Villa's away form, right? Is that conceding early in games this season has proven to be a real, um, a real problem for for you. How do you overcome that? If you can overcome that, does does that mean that we um, we start to see even even more interesting things showing up in the numbers or whatever? So, as as an analyst and as a neutral analyst, I hope all I wanted to do with that video last season was just simply say. Okay, the performances are excellent. Villa are obviously a good team. Unai Emery has got the team playing in a good way, but actually, the 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 actual results that we're seeing are maybe not as indicative of what is actually happening behind the mm. scenes. That has changed now, and I'm I'm happy saying that Villa are very sustainable in in terms of what they're doing. But I do get people in my mentions every time Villa win a game these days, being like, "See, we're not." Um, and <laughs> and so, you know, I I don't come out of those I don't come out of those scenarios thinking, "Oh, I was wrong about Villa." I come out of those scenarios thinking, you know, I was right. I, I said that something needed to change. Something has changed. And, and here we are with Villa very much looking like they're one of the top six teams in England. Can you identify what specifically has changed? I think if you look at last season versus this, it's very easy to go. Well, we signed a couple of great players in the summer, Pau Torres and Musa Diaby. But the upturn in form happened at the back end of last season as well. And you mentioned earlier about like if Villa can just fix this and just fix that. Well, so that's true, and we'd all love Villa to just fix m- m- pretty minor problems. I think, mm-hmm. you know, we all know the stat of Villa's record in twenty twenty three. It's, it's two points per game, thirty four played, sixty eight points, third in whatever hypothetical table that is. If Villa fix this and fix that, we're talking about Villa as I could. This sounds mad, but talking about winning the title, which let's face it, we're, we're not at that point yet. But under Uno Emery, there's been this unbelievable turnaround. So, can you kind of pinpoint what 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 he changed? I'm sure there's an extent to which the players simply learned the system better. What you get from great managers like Unai Emery is the capacity to take the players that he has at his disposal and make them into a, you know, transcend the sum of their parts and make the whole into something bigger than people thought possible. And I think when that kind of thing happens, there's always going to be a bit of a lag as 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 players get used to um, uh, used to the system. I suspect as well there's been there's been some defensive um tweakery that's been going on because um again looking at the underlying numbers from last season it was it was definitely the the uh, defensive numbers that improved i think at least in terms of the attacking numbers they were always f- fine um but you were always a little bit vulnerable in terms of uh, the defensive side of things so i suspect a lot of it just comes down to the fact that um he he made a few changes in on, on the defensive side and and you know off the back of that and it's you know that that is almost a universal um, situation for teams who go on to be decent. When Arsenal flipped from being a sort of average team under Arteta, the first thing that changed for them was that their defensive numbers got better. You're in in the Premier League. You're always going to be able to make those in, 
improvements in performance when you're working from a solid defensive base. So I, in my opinion, it, it's generally better to make sure your defense is solid and then start working on the the attacking principle side of things. Uh, and that seems to be the way that it's gone with, with Emery as well. So obviously this season, there have been tactical tweaks that have been forced upon you by, by injury. Mm-hmm. And again, that's another area where just having a manager like Unai Emery really stands you in good stead because... You know, he's not he's not a system coach. He is very much a sort of granular details coach. And I think mm. when you have that at your disposal, you can say, fine, we, we did spend most of last season progressing the ball in the on the left-hand side. We've lost Jacob Ramsey. We've lost Alex Moreno. That's not going to be a problem. We'll find something else um, to, to fix um, that problem. And, and equally with the, some of the stuff we've seen from um, the use of Bubakar Kamara this season as well is, you know, tweaking tweaking things, making it work, getting the best out of the players he has at his disposal. Ultimately, what, as a fan, you want from your football manager, you don't want him to to sit there and go, um, create excuses that, oh, well, well, we've lost some of the players that were here last year. Moreno and Ramsey in particular is the entire left-hand side of the pitch mm, and they work yeah. very well together. Tyron Mings, obviously, at the start of this season, goes down in the in the first half against Newcastle. Emi Buendia is injured in training before that game even kicks off. Like mm. Those four players, there's an argument for, for Buendia, but the three of those definitely start. And that alters potentially how Pau Torres is, is adapted in as well. So to not create excuses and just get on with it is is another kind of feather in the cap of Unai Emery, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm a Leeds fan. Mm-hmm. We had Marcelo Bielsa, right? He, he, he did. He was that coach for me. He was the coach who came mm-hmm. in and took the players, and the the sum of the parts was was not a great hole when he arrived, and he got us to the Premier League. We got a ninth place finish off the back of him implementing structures and systems and details that made those players better and that's what we're seeing i think at, at villa with with emery is that it, it doesn't you don't fall off a cliff if the, the the player that you've been playing in one position isn't available you move things around you you tweak things you you use um international breaks to to work on things so for example i think the bubakar kamara tweet happened after an international break gave you a bit of time to do some stuff on the training field um we all know that emery sessions are long and and often arduous and very details heavy and um you know there's upsides and downsides to that i think if things start going badly that's when when unai emery sort of loses the players a bit because you're putting a huge amount of effort into getting the system to the level that you're getting it at and if if you aren't getting those results it can re- mean that players get a bit fed up i don't think that will happen in the case of Villa, for, it, for for instance, but it has happened at some of the more, um, some of those teams that you might expect him to to thrive in, like PSG is a good example of that. What I think about having a coach like Unai Emery or Marcelo Bielsa as a fan is that you recognise that he's doing something and mm. that is having a positive impact on the team. And I think that gives you a huge amount of buy-in as a coach because the fans will say, there's a process here, trust the process. Yeah. Sometimes we're going to lose games, and that's fine. Um, we have a coach who can assess the problems, uh, work out what those problems are, and rectify those problems. And I, you know, I think it's there's nothing better for a fan than to to feel as though you know my coaches. I've got a good coach here. I don't need to worry about them. Uh, all we need to worry about is you know turning up, watching the game, and, and getting getting results. It's it's a nice place to be in. Yeah, and we've seen so far this season at least that when Villa lose a game, they don't lose the next one. And they often actually win the next one. It'll be interesting to see if they can keep that up. Obviously, the run of fixtures after the international break is Spurs away, Bournemouth away, Man City at home, Arsenal at home. So, you know, Villa are going to lose games. It's obvious even the, the most ardent Villa fan will expect Villa to drop points here and there. It'll be interesting that if we lose to Spurs, that we don't go to Bournemouth, which, yes, they've got nine points, but that's not there's no easy game. You don't lose there. 
if you do lose to Man City at home, you don't lose to Arsenal the, follow, the, the following weekend at home. You've got to make sure you kind of always bounce back a little bit. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You mentioned the Kamara tweak there, so let's just dive into that a little bit. He starts in midfield, obviously, alongside Douglas Louise, but then in possession and out of possession, there's, there's different roles going on. John McGinn's off the right, but he's coming more centrally. Towards the start of the season, Kamara's not being asked to press from the front, but he's asked to close down a little bit higher up the pitch. Mm-hmm. After that international break, I think it was after the Liverpool game, uh, that the break you mentioned, we saw Kamara drop back further into almost a back three. Cash bombs forward uh, down the right-hand side and Kamara drops into like a, a right-back, third centre-back hybrid. And McGinn comes over from the right-hand side to cover the space where Kamara was earlier in the season. And he's much more effective at getting further up the pitch and closing down higher up. And that's such a sim- simple change. And again, when we go back earlier to talking about no excuses, I, I would hate for my manager or Fruna Emery to go, well, that's not quite working there. I need a new £50 million signing to make this yeah. this thing work. It's going, no, there's the attributes in this squad elsewhere that we can change a couple of positions and go again kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's really nice to see because what he's what he's doing there is identifying a problem and finding a way to fix it. Um, yeah. Again, you know, it's I don't think it's just down to the fact that the um the few games early on in the season you were getting a little bit overrun in transition um i think it does come down to okay well we need to progress the ball on the right hand side as well right so it, it, we need to get for example Mash, matty cash a little bit higher up the pitch as well how do we do that without becoming totally exposed with with lucadina on the other side as well being pushed high you don't want to you might not want to leave just two center backs back as well so i think there's a there's in possession benefits as well as out of possession benefits there and you you have the players at your disposal to be able to do that john mcginn um coming inside i think is is you know it, it it's the the perfect antidote then to having one of your midfielders drop out and and i you know it's worth saying that in in unsettled possession so from goal kicks you're still operating in that same in, in terms of the the low build up two triangles on either side so your center backs your full backs and then the the double pivot the two center midfielders in the middle um mm-hmm. you're still operating with those principles that you were using last season um keep the ball deep bait the opposition forward create space to have those those artificial uh, transition attacks which villa are so dangerous from so you're still operating with that back four and then so the four two shape that that we see um from from build up but then as soon as you get into settled possession higher at the field or if you win the ball back higher up and you're able to reset possession that's when you see kamara dropping out mcginn coming inside cash pushing forward the 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 task of a manager i think is always to try and get the benefits as many benefits as you can going forward and coming back as as you can so that it feels like you've got extra players in attack and it feels like you've got extra players in defense and i think that structure is very much designed to do that it, it is mm. designed designed to cause problems for oppositions because you now have then essentially two wing backs pushing pushing up in possession um luca Dina, obviously a great um a, a great crosser of the ball matty cash Hitting back posts, scoring tap-ins, right? So properly, properly getting um, high up the pitch to to score to score goals. And again, that's that's what you want your coach to do to find the upsides of your players and then f- and develop structures to be able to get the most out of them in those scenarios. But at the same time, even though you're going to be super aggressive with your wing backs, you still got that extra cover at the back now with Kamara dropping out. You still got 
midfield coverage from from the two wide players moving inside uh, in whoever it is Zaniolo um, they've been using you've been using Yuri Tillemans there recently uh, and then McGinn coming in inside as well to help out Douglas Luiz and it's it's just you know it's it's good stuff and the thing is is uh, it will be constant evolutions under Emery if if he feels that that structure isn't giving him the upside that he wants anymore no doubt there will be a tweak to it um, mm. and you'll see something something else happening um, obviously Alex Moreno is is close to be, being um, back again right so again yeah. there's 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 questions about what do you do with him because I believe Luca Dean has played every minute in the league so far which is not what anyone was expecting at the end of last season for sure so again it's it, it's it's just this capacity to find solutions get the best players that you have available on the pitch into the best positions of available in your structure and and um, mm. good things happen we spoke about this last week I think that if you'd have when we did our season preview stuff in the in the summer if I'd have said to you that in mid-November we'd have lost Mings, Buendia, um, Moreno and Ramsey and we'd sit fifth place pretty comfortably, you'd be going, well, you're mental. Obviously, that's not going to happen. They're huge losses. Like, Luca Dean can't play every game. He's, he's nowhere near as good as Moreno, but Emery just finds a way and, and that's exactly what you want. Um, we'll come back to a couple of individuals in a second. I want to talk about the high line, which is, I feel like it's become a bit of a meme, to be honest, amongst like the wider football fan base or the, the national media. Um, we'll save the kind of um, thoughts on the Spurs game in a second. Is this kind of like narrative with the high line, how like Villa will be found out eventually? Villa found their opponents to be offside 58 times in the Premier League this season, which is which is, which is top by some way. Uh, Spurs are second with 38, and we've scored the second most goals in the league whilst playing that, that style of football as well, 29 versus Man City's 32. This kind of idea that Villa are going to get found out, yes, they're going to get caught out at times because Pau Torres isn't the, the paces defender on the turn. If somebody plays a ball in behind with pace and Martinez doesn't make a great save, yes, you can concede goals and lose games. But on the whole, we've seen that playing this style of football has worked pretty consistently for the course of an entire season, pretty much. So this idea that Villa were kind of riding their luck or they'll get caught out is a bit short-sighted I think yeah I mean almost every conversation that you'll have about a tactical decision has to be centered around the idea of trade-offs so Mm. it's very easy for for fans to look at a high line and be like well it's obvious what can go wrong here but I think it's it's much harder to see the benefit of what you get from playing a high line that's what I think that's what the conversation needs to revolve around it has to revolve around why is it that Villa play a high line for me, the question of where you're going to play your defensive line is all about where you want the game to be contested. Mm. Do you want the if you play a lower line, what you're often going to be suggesting is that the opposition are going to have less pressure. They're going to be less pressured in their build-up phase, gives them more scope to progress the ball down the field, which means that you have the possibility of being forced back. You're then allowing the opposition to have the ball. And maybe you'll try and hit them on the break in, in that way. But that comes at a cost because the cost is that you're allowing the opposition to dictate possession. Uh, you're giving them more of the ball than than you're going to have. And mm. in the Premier League, often, you, the more ball that a good side has with the players that they have means that they, they can probably uh, break you down. Now, there's obviously exceptions to that rule. And there's certain teams you play in that way because they fancy their chances, right? So West Ham are a great example of that. Uh, yeah. West Ham do play deep and try and hit on the break. They have the players to be able to do that. But it's still, I would say, a gamble. Right? West Ham don't win every game where they have less possession. Often, most of the games they win, they will have less possession. There's certain games where they'll just get turned over by teams because those teams will take their chances. And um, you know, West Ham are going to have a very limited number of chances because they have less possession. They may be higher quality chances, um, but they still got to take those chances. And mm. if the opposition score a couple of goals, 
the odds are you're probably not going to get enough good chances to to be able to match that. So the idea with with Villa playing a higher line is that they don't they want to contest for the ball higher up the field. I mean, Villa Villa are a very good counter pressing team. It doesn't get talked about a huge amount in the in the general conversation. But how many goals do you do you see Villa scoring where the ball is won, you know, in the opposition's half? Yeah. And and then a, a quick transition comes from it. That's the the trade off from having having your high line. Now, y- even if you're not generating chances from that, the ability to control the opposition in those situations is important too. So if you want to con- you want to keep the the opposition away from your goal and and you're willing to take the risk with that high line, and you're going willing to take the risk because you have players who you think can play that system and a keeper who can sweep behind. I think it's it's fair enough to approach the game in that way and accept that. Okay, sometimes teams are going to break our offside trap, and sometimes we're going to score goals that look very preventable by simply not playing in that way. But when you match all of the trade offs together, I think that it's clear at the moment that Villa are getting the benefit of playing that system, as you say. And it's worth remembering, you know, there's the, the Liverpool team that won the Premier League played a high line. They used to cut, catch teams offside all the time. And that high line allowed them the capacity to to be able to make sure they were um, contesting the game in the right way in the opposition's half. So, mm. th- you, you know, when you're playing a high line, you're you're not just relying on the the back four, in your case, to, to make sure there's no problems. You're relying on the pressing unit at the front to put the opposition under pressure in certain situations so that they aren't given the time and space to be able to find the balls in over the top that can be so devastating. Equally, yeah. your back four will be... Your, your back four will have a series of triggers that will allow them to know when to drop off. And again, that's all to do with training as well, and it will change per game. But yeah. some of these tri- people ask me for examples of this. But <laughs> so some of these triggers will be, and you'll see this if you if you watch Villa playing the high line. There'll be certain situations where, for example, a centre back might get the ball in space and move the ball out of their feet. Obviously, they're going to play it long, and those in those situations, you'll see the Villa defenders ready to drop off. Um, already to to get the run on the on the attacking line as well. Different teams will have different triggers, and different um, triggers will be used in different games. But again, what the coach is doing in those situations is pro- providing his players with all the information they need about how mm. to play that back line correctly. Now, I've mentioned Liverpool already. Obviously, Liverpool's press bombed out last season for various reasons, and because of that, Liverpool Liverpool's high line was much less effective. Um, and so, you're in that scenario where the question becomes. Should we still be playing this high line? And Liverpool did change the way that they were playing off the back of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, like you said, at this point in time, it's the, why why should Villa stop playing a high line? Where are the games where we think that Villa have just been devastated by playing a high line or have, have lost out by playing a high line in the main? I can't I can't think of many of them. I think no, maybe the, the the Newcastle game, but I think there's there's other reasons why that went wrong. But yeah. for for the most part. I don't see any issues from from Villa playing a high line and certainly not to the extent that they outweigh the positives that playing the high mm. line gives you. Yeah, there was a game earlier this season, I can't remember which it was, I think it was away from home and it was probably one of the ones we lost where Watkins and Diaby just weren't pressing effectively yeah. and he, it kind of looked like, well, if you're going to play the high line, them two have got to be, all, the whole squad has, but those two have got to be on their game and for whatever reason, they, whether I don't know whether that was instructed or not, they just weren't pressing in the way that we've seen from them before and, and it's in those moments you think, Okay, this isn't working. Something has to change. 
I mentioned the Spurs game, so obviously that's the, the game coming up after the international break or coming up this week, I should say, as this comes out. And again, that's become a bit of a thing on, online that the high line versus the high line, the the Spurs um, Chelsea game that I saw your al- analysis of that Ange Postacoglu was kind of like right to, to carry on doing what he was doing, playing the high line with nine men. And on the face of it, you think, well, they lost 4 1. Like, of course, they, they weren't right to do that. But the principles of, well, if we drop deeper with nine men, we're just going to have. 30 minutes of Chelsea bombarding us and eventually they'd probably score anyway. And Dyer has a good chance, doesn't he? And if anything, Spurs could have come out of that game having got something and everyone's going, well, fair play. Like he stuck to his guns and they actually got something. Off the back of that, it's going, who do Spurs play next? Oh, it's Villa, another team that I play the high line. You're going to have all outfield players compressed on the halfway line like this. Now, I actually don't think that's how the game will pan out. We've seen in the the Chelsea game specifically, I think, away for Villa this season. The red card did change that game, uh, Gusto getting sent off. But I thought Villa played in a different way at Stamford Bridge and dropped off a little bit and looked maybe a little bit more cautious. Mm. So I don't anticipate this chaos at the Tottenham Stadium of two two high lines against each other and just who can beat the offside trap. I think Emery will tweak it a little bit and, and change his ways, not drastically, but enough to be more prepared. Yeah, it's it's worth saying that to go, to go back to the the Spurs Chelsea game, I'm, uh, I would I would I'm, I always try as an analyst to, to avoid saying a coach is right or wrong to do something. I think coaches mm. have you know they have every possibility of making decisions that they think is going to work, and I think sometimes those decisions may not work out well for whatever reason. Sometimes that's because the 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 problems are with the enactment on the part of the players. Um, Sometimes a, a team can just get unlucky, but yeah, other times I think, well, you know, if I was the coach, I wouldn't do that. But I think the way that you should should be assessing these things all the time is in terms of what I said before, trade-offs. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's what Unai Emery will be doing heading into this game. He'll be thinking, what's the trade-off of playing a super aggressive high line um, versus versus maybe being a little bit more cautious, as you said. Um, and, you know, he has to make that decision and... Um, I don't think we should just look at the result and and determine whether or not those decisions were correct on the basis of the result. It's one of the things I'm really interested in at the moment. Like how do you how do you analyze games of football from a tactical point of view without just falling into the trap of being like X team lost, therefore the tactical decisions they made were wrong. Um, so that's that's sort of the context going in going into that game. It's also worth saying I think in that game, Spurs arguably went more aggressive with their high line after they were down players than they were before. And I think there's there's reasons for that. I think they were, you know, they were trying to destabilize Chelsea a little bit and and put them in a situation where they maybe wouldn't usually be in and be like, okay, we're going to pose you a problem. Try and solve it. If Postacoglu thinks that the players that he has on the pitch are going to cause more problems in a low block than they are playing a high line, then yeah, fair, fair play. That's that's his prerogative as a coach. Um but I also don't think that like de facto Playing the high line as a as a problem to solve uh, is the worst idea in the world. I think maybe a little bit more unusual when you're talking about a, a team like Chelsea, where they've got Nicholas Jackson and um, Raheem Sterling, and they brought on Mikhailo Mudrik, all players who are very good in in those sorts of like running into space scenarios. But mm. as 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 we said, it was it took them until the final ten minutes of that game to to really solve the problem um, and had Spurs managed to, to level up, who knows what, what, what would have happened. But yeah. yeah, going forward to the game itself, I would be surprised if both teams played so aggressively a high line as they did in those <laughs> in those two, two fixtures that we're, we're talking about. So the question is going to be for, for Emery in particular, does he see Spurs offering a huge amount of threat in behind? And um, obviously Spurs are missing a few key players who can cause mm. problems yeah. in terms of that. I mean, the, missing James Madison 
makes that question a lot easier to to answer. I think is Hyung, is Hyungmin Son going to be the sort of player who's just going to um, run you run your back line ragged with a high line? Probably not at this point in his career. Um, and then vice versa for Spurs, if you don't have Mickey Van de Ven, who's one of the best backwards defenders in the Premier League, by which I mean like running back and defending in, mm. in that direction, defending towards his own goal. Postacoglu has some difficult questions to answer as well. Now, Postacoglu tends to be an idealist, but Unai Emery is anything but an idealist. We've been talking about that the whole time, basically, that he will find tweaks for different games. He will make the players aware of what tweaks he's making, and then they will drill them a lot. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I would be... I would be um, surprised if 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 the the high lines that we've seen the highest lines that we've seen from both of those teams so far would be uh, evidenced in that game mm, no no Romero either I think he's suspended so um yeah yep. Spurs themselves might not play in the same way although they, they probably sure. will um so uh, it's an interesting matchup at least I did say I want to talk about a couple of individuals but I want to get to a couple of fan questions mm-hmm. uh, obviously Villa are unbelievable at home pretty much since my little one was born back in January Villa have won every game at home it's ridiculous you're saying it's down to you is that what you're saying oh it's down to to him (laughs) isn't it Uh, more so than anything a little good luck charm Um, (laughs) 13 home wins in the Premier League consecutively is is brilliant Uh, the record for Villa is 14 Villa's next opponent at home is Manchester City. No easy task, of course, but all Villa fans, uh, yeah, again, they'll be looking at it going, Man City are Man City, they're level above anyone. But there'll be that little bit of every Villa fan who goes to the game who thinks, you know what, we can cause trouble here. Like We, we could do something potentially. And that, that's a lovely position as a fan to be in, isn't it, that you back your team to, to take on even the very best. Um, so a couple of questions. Simon asks, can Villa actually beat Man City at Villa Park? And if so, how do they go about it? Uh, we'll send this clip to Unai Emery. And Max asks, can you ask John how he thinks Unai Emery compares with Pep? That's quite a loaded question, but you can take those however you like. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, <laughs> the first thing that should be said is that, you know, every team can beat Man City. Um, I've just made a very long video on how did you go about beating Pep Guardiola on the TIFO IRL channel. Yeah, and okay. I went in, I dug into the data and the data is, the, the data around Pep Guardiola is remarkable. If you're ever tempted to think that he isn't the best manager of all time, then I would respectfully disagree with you. So we're talking about we're talking about how do you beat a manager with with the sorts of um, the sorts of data that he has across like whatever it is now seven seasons of the Premier League. Now in the in that seven seasons of the Premier League, he's played uh, just over 275 games off the top of my head. In those of those games, I think he's lost 37 of them. Um, and if you look at all the games that he's played, uh, of, of all of those, the games that he's played, I think there's only been something like 24 times when he's lost on expected goals. That's all by way of context to say beating, beating Pep Guardiola is a very tough thing to do. Um, and I think the teams who tend to do it do two things. One of them is they sit deep, try and hit on the break. Maybe Villa will do that away at, at, at City, but I, I wouldn't imagine that, that um, Unai Emery will be going in with a sort of back-to-the-wall mentality to that game. Maybe no. he will. The other way that you can do it is by having a, um, a very flexible out-of-possession system um, where you're able to mitigate all of the flexibility that Man City have in their possession phase, which is tough. And then you hope that you grab a goal at the end, um, mm. which is what we saw happening in the uh, Arsenal City game earlier this season. You need huge dollops of, you need to have a really, really good out of possession system and you need to have huge dollops of luck going forward. So um, yeah, it will be tough for sure. Um, City are in in their weird phase at the moment that they have at the beginning of seasons where 
Guardiola is still sort of trying to work out where what, what his best system is and what will happen, no doubt, is that they'll probably tease us with a title race until John Stones comes back from injury with 20 games to go and then Man City don't drop a point for the, the end of the season. So definitely, definitely a good period of time to play against City. Mm-hmm. You have to be you have to be perfect to beat City. Um now it's not to say that Villa won't be perfect and can't be perfect. And I think, you know, Man City will not be looking forward to that game for for all of those reasons. Uh, but it's, a, it's it's definitely a tough ask. In terms of comparing Emery and Pep, yeah, I think the 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 manager that I would probably compare Emery to in the Premier League is Roberto De Zerbi. Mm. Um, just because the the same sorts of concepts are in play right deep build up baiting opponents forward trying to hit trying to hit on the break uh, in those artificial transitions um i feel as though I mean, I mean city have changed they have morphed now that they've got Holland. they are more likely to maybe go a bit more risky than they were when they were in their sort of high control phases of a couple of seasons ago um so in terms of style-wise, anyway, I, I don't necessarily see the similarities between Pep and Unai Emery. But in terms of in terms of quality, I guess the the big question is, you know, to what to what level can we see Unai Emery reaching? And I think Unai Emery suffers from his Arsenal stint in terms of Premier League um, fan opinion on him. Yeah, uh, but I equally I, I do feel as though there there has to be a question about the sorts of teams that suit Emery. Um, mm. We've already mentioned that, like PSG, Arsenal, those periods didn't go well for whatever reason. And I think there's arguments to be made that when you have an exact, as exacting a coach as Emery, uh, players at the very elite level can can sort of shrug and say, "I'm a great player. Why should I put the effort into learning all of this boring yeah. stuff? Why should I sit, sit through 90 minute presentations and and you know do really really boring unopposed training sessions where it'll be Unai Emery." moving the ball around on the back line and telling you to press in different ways. Uh, we, there's clips of him doing that um, for Villarreal against Manchester United in the Europa League. In each situation, here's the ball. What should a pressing shape look like? Move, blow the whistle, reset, move it to a different <laughs> position, do the same. Do that until it's just drilled into them. They know exactly where they're supposed to be standing in each mm. phase of the game, out of possession to stop the opposition from causing a problem. That is that is boring. It, I find that exciting, but... I am a sicko and should not be. I should not be followed on this whatsoever. So the, you know, I think that there's always the question with with Unai Emery: to at what point does he start losing the benefit, mm. the, the benefits, right? And I think at Villa is just the perfect club for him. He's come in. He's got good players to hand, good players who can and buy into the system, and it's worked. So you say we're doing all this hard work. And you guys are, you know, you you guys are better than you were. So I think you, he gets a huge amount of buyout. Uh, buy-in sorry mm. from the players for that um and hopefully that will will continue going forward but i think sometimes when you inject that right to the top level to players who are just like we should be performing consistently title challenging and you know we're great players therefore we don't need to you don't need to give us tactics you just need to get us on the pitch and we'll do the business i think maybe you lose a little bit of that benefit as well but i think I, for me he's right up there in you know the, the 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 best European coaches of of the of his generation, which is why I find it funny that Villa fans think that I hate Villa because I've I've loved I've loved Unai Emery for 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 ages now, and um, I was very excited about him coming to Villa, and um, I think it's you know like you say it's a match made in heaven, and um, again I'm 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 a guy who appreciates tactics, who appreciates putting in hard work to develop a system which is going to make you greater than the sum of your parts. And that's just what you, that's what you get with Unai Emery. And, and it's great to see mm. because I, as a tactical analyst, want to believe that 
the tactics make a difference. I probably overstate the importance of tactics because, as I've said, you know, elite players solve problems on the field. Tactics can help you get a structure that will allow you to do that, but you're still relying on the talent of your players to make those solutions in certain moments. Yeah. Um, but managers like Unai Emery, I think, are just really easy to like when you're a tactic when you're a tactical nerd because you can see what they're doing. There is that process. You can see him finding those solutions that help the players find their own solutions on the pitch as well. There's a couple of individuals I want to talk about. One who is a new signing, and one who is already at the club. We'll start with the new signing, and I want to talk about Paul Torres and how important he is to this particular way of playing. Uh, he's already completed 63 progressive passes in 11 games this season, which is more than any other Premier League centre half. He's also completed 67 passes into the final third, which is bettered by only one centre-back from Brighton, Lewis Dunk, and only four other players in the division. Now, he was signed this summer, obviously he worked with Unai Emery before. I said during the summer in our build-up show podcast that obviously Tyra Mings was fit at the time and that back line was very good last season, uh, Mings and concert Why would you want to change that up? Yes, he's good on the ball, but Villa have got a good, good thing going there. And it wasn't me kind of doubting his ability, but just where does he fit in? Does he play as a, as a left back that cuts inside? Is it a, a, a back three? Obviously, all those conversations go out the window 25 minutes into Newcastle because Mings is out for pretty much the season, if not the whole thing. Uh, and Torres and Conso are now the back, the back two centre-halves and have been brilliant together, by the way. There was a bit of kind of shakiness around Pau Torres to begin with and that's just an adaptation to the league. It's losing the first game 5-1, coming in 25 minutes into the game cold. It's difficult to judge him on that. But since then, I think that the only criticism is maybe his, um, his pace when he's back towards goal, going back towards his goal uh, and his turning kind of uh, agility or whatever you want to call it isn't as quick as maybe we would like. And Mings is actually kind of deceptively quick, I think. Like the trade-off of Pau Torres is, yes, he might not be the quickest defender going backwards, but everything he does going forward and allowing you to play the system, that's the trade-off that you're willing to accept. Uh, what have you made of, of Torres so far? Yeah, I mean, he's a very high trade-off player, right? I think that's why he, 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 he prompts these conversations in people because... You know his physical profile, I think, is is not as elite as 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 maybe a lot of other players in the Premier League. But as we've said, his technical profile is probably above the level of some of the centre backs in the Premier League. And so you marry those two things together, and I think it's easy to be like, this guy's great or this guy's bad, depending on what situation um, is going to emphasise whichever trade off you're you're talking about there. So. Mm. The game against Liverpool, a good example of that, right? Liverpool targeted him in the in their press and, and caused problems in build-up. Um, but there will be other games as well um, where, you know, as you've said, the ability to have a, a centre-back in that deep build-up situation who can bounce the ball around that triangle, find those half-space passes into, into the, the wide midfielders, um, progress the ball down the field, can carry the ball well. Um, those, those are really useful um, and beneficial traits to have as well. Obviously, Unai Emery has worked with him before, so he, he, he values those traits and wants to bring yeah. them in, right? And feels as though he can use that player in his system. So it it, it comes down to, to those trade-offs. And I, I guess the big question is going to always be, you know, and I, I suppose this is a conversation we could have in terms of, uh, it feels to me this season that Villa have been a little bit more transitional this season than maybe they were the previous season. Um I think maybe teams have been less willing to compete with them when they're in the build-up mm. phase, right? So, and that's again, you know, you take that as a compliment, which is the same the same problem that Brighton are having to deal with now, which is their whole structure is uh, and, and and tactical approach is based around 
baiting teams forward, creating the space to then be able to attack it. Um, if you're very good at that, teams will say, fine, we're not going to allow you that space. We're going to allow you possession. We're going to sit deep, um, compress space and not, not not make it quite so easy for you to exploit it. And I think we're seeing that maybe happening a little bit more with 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 Villa and that will change the the way things, the, the, the sort of... Uh, uh, um, the the sort of situations that you're going to find yourself in, which is why I think we see Villa in that in that three five two shape that we see in their settled possession phase a lot more than we do necessarily in the in the build up shape, um, yeah. because there's fewer teams now willing to engage with that 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 deeper build up. For me, then the question becomes like, do you lose some of the upside that you get from someone like Pau Torres if you bring him in to be a really good deep build up guy, and um, a lot of the time he isn't getting to do that as much. I mean, you, you can you can argue the toss on that, but um, I, I do think it's it's worth keeping in mind that you know things things always change um, for, for for clubs. There's always tactical evolutions. Teams teams never play the same way the whole season. Teams never play mm-hmm. on the same form runs the whole season, um, and and so it'll be fascinating to see how the the role of Pau Torres evolves in in the next step of whatever Unai Emery's Villa look like. Yeah, we've seen in games recently the the two AZ Altmar games and the uh, the home game against Fulham before the international break that Martinez is is obviously the sweeper keeper and he, he's expected to help out from the back as well. But there's times he's walking out of his out of his penalty area to be a third centre half and just standing on the ball like if they're not going to press us. Yeah. We can't really do what we want to do and it's on then to, to find a different solution. The other player that I wanted to speak out was one that was already here and one that we, uh, I think last Monday's show or possibly the one before was about John McGinn and his his kind of revolution of, of a year under an Emery that I felt under Steven Gerrard, he's kind of playing kind of in the right back and not his game at all, but was kind of sitting in as a midfield too, um, wasting his ability that we see with Scotland when he plays a lot further forward, almost as a number 10, scores goals, is creative. It's also very good for Villa in the Championship and just, just wasted under Gerrard and was made captain instead of Tyron Mings. And I was just gearing up to be like, this might be the end of John McGinn. He was good in the Championship, but maybe yeah. we've kind of found a level. The problem with Steven Gerrard and his tactics, not not John McGinn, he's been unbelievable under an IMRI and against Fulham was man of the match by by distance that probably went his best game for us period this isn't necessarily a question of what has Emery done to unlock him but even as a neutral Villa fans absolutely love him but even as a neutral I, I expect and my question is you must love watching someone like John McGinn almost like a throwback footballer this all action uh, midfielder he's just been unbelievable for us you know his profile is probably the reason why he was misused by by Gerard. I think people look at a player like John McGinn and think, oh, he's a tough tackling mm. guy who, you know, can run with the ball. Let's play him deeper on the field. Um, that's that's sort of what we want from him. So I, th- I think that he's almost been, I don't want to say misprofile, but I think it, the, the, the sense that, oh, well, it's John McGinn, we should play him deeper on the field. And, and don't get me wrong, I don't think he's bad in that position. We've seen him play as one of the centre midfielders in the Unai Emery system. But mm. I think you do get a huge amount of upside from him um, higher up the field. Um, because as we've said, Villa are now a counter-pressing side. Um, he plays those the, the outside uh, midfielder role really well. He really suits the situation that he's in now, being able to come inside and get involved in central progression of the ball and box crashing. Like just a brilliant box crashing midfielder, right? Get give it to McGinn on the edge of the box, and y- you're in you're 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 in a dangerous scoring position. But he's also played the um, at the end of last season, played the. You know the, the the support striker role in in that four yeah. four shape as well. So I think that 
to, I mean, you answered the question before, right? That what what Unai Emery recognizes that McGinn needs to be played higher up the field. Um, he, he he brings a huge amount of upside to a team like Villa, who are going to be playing in transition, get him into the central spaces, get him drifting inside. Um, but also, he can you know offer a huge amount of cover on in in that wide midfield position as well um, from a defensive point of view. And this is why you know again, this is why Unai Emery is such a a fun coach because. You know, we've seen him play so many non-standard players in those wide midfield positions. Mm. Uh, I remember we all remember Francis Coquelin playing as a an outside midfielder for for Villarreal, um, etc. And uh, you know, uh, the, there's something about that which the, the 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 capacity that he has to have this system that he plays, but put different profiles of different players in different spots. Mm. He talks about how McGinn has played in three of those different roles, and he's played on both sides of the field as well. The ability to be able to put a player like McGinn into one of those slots and then make it work for him, get different upsides from him, regardless you know, depending on where he's played on the on the field. And again, this this does come back to the fact that Unai Emery is is he cares about the granular details, right? He's a, he's a system guy, but he's not beholden to the system. The system is simply like how do i get the best players i have available to me on the pitch in the correct in in the correct structure to be able to get the most out of them and uh, i think john mcginn has been has really been the beneficiary of i mean there's lots of players who've been the beneficiary of unai emery coming in but i think probably john mcginn is the player who was at the lowest ebb and is mm. now has, has now we've seen that sort of rise up um through the, through his time with with unai emery to to being as you said one of the standout players for for villa uh, I've got two final questions to end the show. One is about like the national uh, narrative around Villa, and one is about uh, the top four. We'll say the top four, and the, the, the on the pitch matters till the end of the show. Uh, this is a question from Javo. It's quite long, but I'll, I'll read it all. He says, "Given it's impossible for journalists or pundits to watch and analyse every single Premier League game in total detail, does it surprise you that there is not more regional or specific team-based media people offering analysis on games for BT, Sky, etc." Instead of just having the usual Carragher and Neville on Sky or Shearer and Wright on Match of the Day, who clearly don't watch certain teams regularly, which is fine, it's impossible to do so. Outside the big six, it feels like we're just getting nothing in the way of any detailed analysis pre and post game. Now, obviously, this kind of question feeds into we do podcasts for a living. Like, this is where we come in, we hope, to, to be somebody who will look in more detail than uh, Alan Shearer will in his three-minute analysis segment on a Saturday evening. Um, but how do you take that question of having like almost specific um, knowledge on teams? I think that the 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 mainstream outlets do try and do that um, in terms of TV broadcasting. Right when you when you go to any of the weekend's fixtures that are on Sky, they they'll have someone who's played for hmm. one of the usually both teams, right? In some in some way or other. So then, I mean, that they are trying to do that. I, th- I think maybe the issue here is that that they are sort of hamstring by having to. Uh, rely on uh, X pros rather than w- whatever else you want to talk about analytics pundits whatever I don't know um, and that's a, there's a conversation to be had around that uh, I don't fall either side of it really I I'm someone who would enjoy more tactical analysis of games after after enduring them but the majority of people I don't think care and that's again that's fine um, in terms of the coverage of Villa you know generally in the mainstream it, it's it is very tough to um, to to cover teams like that because more often than not, um, when we do cover a team like Villa, it's because uh, because we it's it's just much easier for us to to get bandwidth in terms of views, etc. Speaking from personal experience, by covering the big teams, there's only going to be certain amount of times during a season that you can cover the non top six or top eight or whatever you, whatever you're going to want to call it. Now, I think Villa have now 
encroached upon those conversations. So no doubt you'll see more Villa coverage. And look, if you look through our coverage, Villa get, I think, disproportional uh, amount of coverage from, from TIFO compared to some of the other teams outside of the top six. But the problem is, is that when you're talking about those teams, Usually the, uh, the 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 situations where we're going to talk about them is when they're doing well, and there's there's one of two ways that that can two of one two ways that that can go. One of them is that here's a team that they're doing interesting things and they're worth what they're doing, but more often than not, it's going to be this team is slightly overperforming. So we dig into the numbers and you know you have a look through what's going on. That's what happened at the end of midway through last season, right? Villa absolutely flying. Let's just dig into the numbers, see what's going on. And, you know, I never expected that video to be anywhere near as controversial as it ended up being. So I think it's tricky. It's tricky for mainstream broadcasters to be able to justify weighting their coverage towards certain clubs. But I do agree that, you know, I, I, I do think that we should be constantly thinking about ways that we can improve coverage of, of sides outside of the big the big sides, um, or at least the top yeah. six, because I think that's it's unfair of Villa to not to not um, throw them in with the the big teams around there. But I think I also sort of feel as though the because of what I've just said, the fact that you know you often when you do good analysis of a team like Villa, it's going to piss off the fans because the fans are always going to want you to have a positive outlook on their club, especially when things are going well. And often those conversations are only arising because the team is maybe over overperforming their numbers. And to be quite honest with you, the the reaction of Villa fans to my video makes me not. It's not even that I don't. It makes. It's not that it makes me not want to cover Villa. When you have a, an extended negative reactions from a fan base, you just kind of think, well, what's what's the point of us making a video on Villa if yeah. you know? before yeah. we've even started that video is going to is going to result in lots of negative comments about it and also we know that you know the the numbers aren't going to be as big as if we're covering manchester mm. united yeah, or yeah. manchester city etc so i i think that when it comes to wanting to see your this is a long-winded way of getting to the answer but when, when it comes to wanting to see your club represented more in media conversations you have to be ready for those conversations to be the conversations that you don't want to hear as a fan. That's, mm. that's part and parcel of what it is. Like every one of the big clubs is talked about whenever they do badly. Manchester United for 10 years now have underperformed where people expect them to be. The media conversation about them has, has constantly been bad. If you want to be a team where they, where you're constantly getting treatment in the mainstream media, you have to be able to take the the, the maybe the, the more difficult content, and that's not to say that the difficult content is always right. And that's not me saying, you know, you've got to you've got to enjoy my videos, regardless. But it is to say that coverage of of your team doesn't necessarily mean that you're constantly going to get validation from the media about where they're at. Personally, for myself, and that I, I often make mistakes, and I I you know I word things badly, as I said, or I maybe get the wrong end of the stick with some teams i'm not always my, my analysis isn't always perfection but i go into those videos with the attitude i want to look at what's going on and give general fans the, the best idea of what's going on at a club i don't go in it with with biased opinions of being like oh i want to i want people to think villa are bad that's not that's not my intention I, as an analyst my my job is to try and explain where teams are at where the problems could lie what they're doing well what they're doing badly uh, and mm -hmm. I think that if you want to be in those sort of 
mainstream conversations that's the way it's headed it's 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 moving towards smarter analysis which is going to dig into underlying numbers and it is going to dig into performances and it's going to look at the tactical breakdowns of what's happening it's going to look for areas where things could improve um as well as do well and so i think that that's just sort of part and parcel of what you should expect as a as a fan if your team is gonna is, is gonna hit the mainstream. So um maybe that's getting me getting a lot of stuff off my chest. But and that good analysis of a team isn't always the analysis as a fan that you want to hear. And I get mm. that and, and I understand that um you know we we're not we we're by me by no means perfect in, in all of our analysis, but it definitely comes from a point of view where we want to help people to understand what's going on in order to be able to enjoy the game more. Oh, I've got no problems with that video from last season. I think the thing that Villa fans would have been annoyed about it, or I'm guessing here at least, is the, the use of the word lucky. And we've spoken about it before. It implies that you don't deserve what you're doing and, and whatever. The thing with our, and again, from the other side of the coin, our, we're the producers of this online content, is that you can have one bad video or perceived to be bad video by a fan base and you're tarred with that for until you say something nice about them potentially to the point that when I tweet this out you've been on the show what five or six times over, over the course of three or four years and we love having you on this has been a brilliant episode I tweeted this out earlier last week technically as this comes out that you were on if there's any questions and I had a couple of people say like oh well he, he he's all he's done is slag us off like I'll be giving that one a miss and it's like well John's been very complimentary of Aston Villa for a couple of years on this podcast never mind anything else that he does so the fact that you can kind of have this bad video follow you around and you're just disregarded going forward is i, I get that it makes you think oh should i even bother do should i bother coming on this podcast again because i'm i'm opening myself up to villa fans and i'm hoping that over the course of this hour-long conversation that people who aren't just going to kind of have a meltdown over the use of a word or the way a title is on a youtube video can see that you are very complimentary about Villa as a club and hopefully this does your Twitter mentions a favour more so than the, than the negative. People have every right to not enjoy that video. That's that's absolutely fine. But what I would ask is that when I do content on Villa in the future, that people just at least give me the the the, the decency of yeah, give me the decency of listening to what I've got to say. Because like you say, if you actually watch that video back, I think I'm very clear in caveating what I'm saying. If I could now, I would go back and say variance instead of lock. And I think if we just said variance instead of lock, then probably we wouldn't have I wouldn't have had any of the the the. Possibly. Um, yeah. the problems that we've had but yeah look that's on me that's that's me learning about how to use tone in a in a mainstream media environment um mm. and that's a lesson I, th- I hope i've learned so yeah going forwards uh, hopefully people will enjoy the the villa content we're putting out hopefully we're doing as as, as good a job as we can to be as uh, palatable to villa fans as possible the answer to this next question may make you even more palatable if you pick <laughs> the right answer um obviously there's the, the chance that fifth place gets champions league football next season uh my wording for this question i'm going to say top four but i mean the Champions League. Do you think that Villa can actually get into the top four this season and play Champions League football next season? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I'm looking at a an industry standard expected points table right now. And on my industry standard expected points table right now, Villa is sixth. So if we're assuming that um that the, the the top five are going to get Champions League football. Villa are performing at a, a level around sixth place. Um, and as we've said, they they do have a tendency to overperform when they're playing well. So I think there's 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 nothing saying that, you know, with a few things going the right way, with maybe that away form being tweaked a little bit and finding solutions to that. And then I suppose the the, the other big question is like how Villa decide to approach Europe um, at mm. the end of the season, because... Uh, assuming you get through, I mean, you're getting through the group stages. 
of the um of the of the european competition that you're in you then have i think if you finish top of the group which i think you probably will do then you have a bit of a break um of a week don't you where uh, the second yeah. play first so i think you, you you miss out a round of fixtures in february and it will it will go it goes forward to march so i think that in come march you'll be in a situation where you can where you're you know your management team and your ownership team will sit down and say we're still within touching distance of of champions league here um we should we need to make a decision at this point like what is our focus going to be on yeah. is it simply going as deep as possible in the conference league or is it prioritizing you know champions league is the best way of of, of raising the profile of villa going forward I think personally by by march you'll still be in and around that conversation and i think that that may mean that we you know we see ollie watkins rested on a on a thursday um in order to prepare him better for for the weekend's fixtures um obviously that's going to be a conversation that that the, as i've said the management and the ownership will have but that's a fantastic position to be in to yeah to be able to sit down and say you know we we can we can either go hell for leather to win a european cup now or we can go hell for leather in the league to try and get into the champions league next season which i think is the sort of profile thing that would boost villa um incredibly so yeah. yeah, I think it, it can happen. Like you know, there's there's certain things about the expected points table that I think are interesting. That one is that Spurs are, are really overperforming their underlying numbers right now. Uh, the other one is that Newcastle for a while were top of the table of uh, the expected points table. They've had a couple of dodgy results and they've now dropped down to fifth. Um, it's all very close in the top. So um, mm. the gap between where Villa are now. So Villa, I've got Villa on twenty one point eight two expected points, but Liverpool top of the table on twenty four point oh four. So we're talking what like two and a bit points away from yeah. performance levels at the very highest level so it's really close so yeah there's no reason why they they couldn't do it and um you know i'm all for teams breaking into that 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 um the the champions league spots that we might not usually expect to see there john thank you so much for sharing an hour of your time with us i've found this absolutely fascinating and i hope those watching or listening did too uh, if you want to get involved in the comments section down below be nice to john please and uh subscribe to Claret and blue to keep up to date with all our latest content john thank you so much thank you for watching we'll see you soon